Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the program. If you are joining us for the first time, as you must be, for this is the first episode, this show is called the Have a Go Show. What does Have a Go mean exactly? Well, it comes from the expression to have a go, which is an encouragement of sorts. It means to take a chance and make something happen. Right now, my own have-a-go energies are directed towards completing my first novel. The novel takes place in 2020, but there is a book within the book which takes place in 1896. In fact, the majority of the story takes place in 1896. And I figured that if I'm going to really be able to get inside the head of my 1896 protagonist, his name is Sebastian. My 2020 protagonist, by the way, is a Hungarian girl named Penny, originally Pani, or Pana. But that's not very important for the current episode. Then I will need to better understand What type of world 1896 Sebastian inhabited? And I feel like the best way to understand something is to teach it. So that is my selfish motivation. But selflessly, I hope that you are entertained and that you learn quite a bit from the stories which I bring you. This episode of 1896, a series by Have a Go, is all about pyrodrama. What was pyrodrama, you may wonder? Well, let's break down the words. Pyro means fire, P-Y-R-O, and drama Well, that means acting, obviously. So pyrodrama was fire acting. But maybe saying acting is selling the word drama a little bit short. You know, acting is pretending. And we all act in all walks of life, in all parts of life. But drama, that has a bit more weight to it. Drama takes place on the stage. Drama is performance. And so pyrodrama and this episode about pyrodrama centers on the incredible, awe-inspiring fire performances that would have been one of the chief entertainments for those who lived in the world of 1896. Now, 1896, this was an interesting time if we look at the development of modern entertainment. It was actually 1895 when the Lumiere brothers presented their famous cinematograph, which was a camera, a projector, and a film printer all in one machine. Now, this in itself was a progression on the Edison Company's announcement of their 1891 kinetoscope, which had been launched to the world a couple years later in 1893. Unlike the cinematograph, which made it possible to display moving pictures to a gathered audience, 
The kinetoscope only allowed for individual viewing through a peephole. Yet by 1895, there were kinetoscope parlors across all major American cities and many global ones as well. Yet as astounding as these technologies were, the pictures which they could display were rudimentary and simple, black and white and noiseless. They showed things like people moving around cities, or horses galloping, crude images that, that were viewed more for the magical novelty of seeing a picture actually move than for the actual content which was being witnessed. But it's not like back then people didn't also crave the loud, bright, spectacular displays of violence that we watch in modern movies today. So if they weren't getting their fix of that from the early moving pictures, surely there must have been a market for scratching this itch somewhere else. And that is the hole which pyrodrama so seamlessly filled. Actually, by 1896, pyrodrama was a very well-established form of entertainment. Its roots stretched back to the invention of the very first fireworks in ancient China. And even before that, there is no doubt that forms of fire-based entertainment kept many an early man company in his brutal Hobbesian world. But the Chinese, they were the ones who added gunpowder to the mix. And that's actually a good clarification on our definition earlier. Because more than a fire performance, pyrodrama was really a display of explosions, which happened to be fueled by fire. In our present day, pyrodrama still exists. The most obvious example is the 4th of July firework shows that scatter across the United States, or any number of performances on New Year's Eve. And there are still more elaborate dramatic affairs which incorporate actors and props and stages just like those of the 19th century. Actually, the possibilities afforded by modern technology have only made things more elaborate and sophisticated. But the difference is that back then, pyrodrama was the creme de la creme when it came to excitement. It was displayed at the coronation of kings and world's fairs and the top pyrodrama tours in the world. Well, they could travel to global capitals raking in tons of money along the way. And even if the technology was not quite as complex as it is today, the stagecraft, the sets, the sense of flair, it was all heightened to an absolute fever pitch. But what was it really? Just fireworks shows with some acting? Let's say you attended a pyrodrama performance in 1896. What would you actually witness? First, 
let me introduce you to a man named James Payne. James Payne was an Englishman, and his family had worked in the world of explosives ever since the late 16th century. One of James's ancestors was the very same John Payne who manufactured the 36 barrels worth of gunpowder which Guy Fawkes infamously stuffed beneath the Houses of Parliament in his aborted plot on November 5th, 1605. Now, it's uncertain whether John, who had established his fireworks, or rather gunpowder manufacturers, on the banks of the Thames in East London in 1593, actually was the one who supplied the gunpowder directly to Fox. But what is certain is that John Payne, he was an entrepreneurial, enterprising sort of man. In just 12 years, he had turned his fledgling business into one of the most prominent gunpowder manufacturers in the British capital. Fast forward two centuries, and his however many great grandson, James, set up a limited liability company and began displaying his famous pyrodramas on a traveling global tour that would see him perform in front of czars and czarinas, kings and queens, emperors and empresses, and took him to places as far flung as Australia, New York, St. Petersburg, Budapest, and everywhere in between. So what would you have witnessed at one of Payne's famous shows? In my novel, Sebastian, an 18-year-old orphan from New York, ends up visiting one of Payne's shows at the unofficial Little Constantinople, Kish Constantinople, section of Budapest's 1896 Millennial Exhibition. It took place on what today is called the Kopasigat, but I don't want to give away too much from the actual book just now. I do, however, want to get inside Sebastian's head. For while my other main character, Penny, of 2020, she is written in the third person, Sebastian, his story is told through his own pen. And so, as I said, I must know the world which within he lives. Now, I will write this passage as Sebastian attends one of Payne's famous shows in 1894. At the time, he was living in the Lower East Side of Manhattan with his uncle Barney. They are en route to Coney Island where Uncle Barney has decided to take Sebastian on Memorial Day weekend. Payne's famous show, which really did play at Coney Island many, many times, is one of his most beloved that day. The so-called Last Days of Pompeii. It's a dramatic reenactment of the famous explosion of Mount Vesuvius which left thousands of residents cocooned in magmatic ash, 
caught in frozen time, in their final moments of life-extinguishing terror. From the Diary of Sebastian Taylor, May 30th, 1894. We arrived at Coney Island, and the ocean seemed to spill right into a sea of humanity, which marched its way over to Payne's show. Uncle Barney got me tickets for my 16th birthday. It's always a sad weekend, this weekend, but we try not to sulk. Uncle Barney always tells me to keep a stiff upper lip. Of course I'm sad about it all. How could you not be? And yet, it's just the part of life. Tragedies that happen before the age of six, even those as life-altering as mine, simply grow with you like moss on a tree. It's not something I think about much, besides when I'm talking to you. Now enough of that. Let me tell you about Payne's show that weekend. It was bloody spectacular. A bit disturbing, sure, but spectacularly so. I'd never seen anything like it before. The last days of Pompeii is how it had been built. We approached the entrance, waiting on a queue that stretched along the boardwalk for what must have been a mile. Much of the crowd was in some state of inebriation. Of course, only being 16 years old, I was not. Uncle Barney, who was a sober man by habit, he was not either. But I do remember a particularly buffoonish gentleman wearing a bowler hat crooked atop his head and with a face reddened in equal measures by sun and whiskey who called out, Who's ready to see some dead Italians? As globs of spit ejaculated past a mustache, which could have doubled for a beaver. A few in the line laughed at this, while his family, comprised of two innocent-looking girls wearing prim blue dresses, one a head taller than the other, but neither over the age of eight, and a wife with the eyes of a particularly terrified doe, recoiled as if by well-accustomed reflex in shame and embarrassment. Finally, we were at the front of the line, and after our tickets were checked, we found our seats amongst the rafters. It was just around sunset time, and everything was glowing on what had been a perfect New York late May afternoon. Uncle Barney got to talking to a man sitting next to us, and I listened to their conversation. You know the story of the pains, don't you? Said the man, in a British accent. I know they do fireworks, replied Uncle Barney who normally didn't have much time for these types. But I mean how they got there. Not quite. Not realizing that Uncle Barney did not want to know how the pains had got there, but was too polite to be any more obvious about it, the British man, who sported a tweed jacket and occasionally puffed on a long mahogany pipe, began to illuminate the both of us with the tale. After telling us all about Guy Fawkes and droning on for a bit in the 17th and 18th centuries, he stated, So you see the two of them all the way across there. He pointed his long pointer finger across a massive artificial lagoon 
which stood as calm as glass, with several naval vessels perched atop it, loaded, I knew, with enough explosive powder to burn down the whole of the boardwalk if not properly secured. I squinted and could just about make out the mustaches of the two men scurrying around, discussing what must have been final preparations and stage directions with their hundreds of costumed actors. Well, that's James and his son Henry. Henry's mostly in charge of this one now, to be honest. Based here in New York, isn't he? James is busy with his tours. Going to Australia this winter. It's their summer, of course. Imagine the fireworks spin the other way down there, don't they? I didn't know what he meant by this. Do fireworks spin? Nor did I know why this man seemed to refer to the pains, as if they were personal acquaintances. When he looked to me to be just any old punter with a ticket... But he continued. Now they are getting ready for the start of the show. It's going to be one hour runtime officially, though they always go a bit beyond it. I was here in 1882, wasn't I? It's a bit grander now, they say. But I've been every year since. And I'll have you know, that first show was the best of them all. I think they might just top it this time, though, if we're lucky. Finally, the man ceased talking. Now the lights came on, directed down on us in the rafters. And across the lagoon, an intricate model of ancient Pompeii, complete with the Temple of Isis, an amphitheater, and classical buildings, all dissolved into dramatic darkness. Below the rafters, and stationed in front of the lagoon, Gilmore's famous Manhattan Beach Orchestra began to play. Suddenly, the lights extinguished, and the orchestra stopped with a halting screech. Ten seconds of hushed anticipation, and now a bath of light flooded the far side of the lagoon, Pompeii in all its glory appearing nearly thrice as large as it had in the fading embers of dusk. Here comes Henry. He's the son, spouted the British man, unable to conceal his rabid excitement. And now Henry, with a crew of what could have been up to 500 stage actors stationed behind him, took to a podium and belted out, Ladies and gentlemen, what you are about to see will astound, terrify, excite, and enliven. The company gathered behind me here are no mere actors. No, no, no. These folks here are the real deal. Chipped out of excavated rock in the fossilized magmatic soil of old Italy. Animated and brought across the sea. They are here today to recreate their own apocalypse. Roars of enthusiasm erupted from a bloodthirsty crowd. Now, without further ado, spoke Payne, in a voice made solemn by the gravity of what was to follow. 
I bring you from Payne's Fireworks Limited, the last days of Pompeii. There were too many things to focus on at once as this stage bustled into motion. There were jugglers and acrobats and all sorts of dancers stealing attention at various positions across the mock city. In the center of the square, children played marbles and other games, while a monkey danced to the tune of a man playing the pipes. There were mock battles taking place in the lagoon, between the boats, which didn't make much sense to me, as there had definitely not been any naval battles during the actual last days of Pompeii, and all the ships seemed to be from a different, more modern era. Nonetheless, these naval battles were something that Payne's adoring audience had come to expect, I learned later, and that was the reason that they were anachronistically forced in. In the amphitheater, a show within a show was taking place. It was hard to determine what exactly was being displayed, but it seemed to be a comedy by the way the crowd in the Pompeii Amphitheater rocked back and forth in exaggerated laughter. Or perhaps it was a tragedy, and they had a particularly twisted sense of humor. A troop of Roman soldiers marched through the town in lockstep, clad in gleaming bronze, which must have been far less bright in the normal wear and tear of everyday use back then. For that was the point that struck me most of all as I watched black wisps of smoke curl out from the artificially constructed Mount Vesuvius. This was just supposed to be a normal day, like any other. Okay, of course Payne's version of it was anything but normal, and yet, the point was driven home all the same. And of course, these actors and stagehands were just the assorted and gathered rejects from more sophisticated performances on Broadway and in the downtown. But if they had actually been carved from magmatic stone and resurrected, they would be about to watch their own extinction. Fascinating stuff. Brutal, but fascinating. As the show progressed, every five minutes or so, a larger and more grandiose set piece of pyrotechnics would occur. Sometimes these fireworks seem to have some logical reaction to the growing threat of the volcano or to the fiery naval battle taking place on the lagoon while at other times they were simply tributes to the incredible, explosively aesthetic achievements made by the Payne family over the preceding two centuries. It was all building up to the grand climax, which the audience waited for with dreadful and sadistic anticipation. Look, look, look at Vesuvius, it's about to blow, interrupted our British companion oblivious to his ability to spoil each and every dramatic beat for anyone with an earshot. And suddenly, as Gilmore's band played louder and louder beneath us, 
The entirety of the stage was consumed in a blinding red light, which soon changed to orange and then green, purple, and I could have sworn I spotted pink. Then followed the screams, blood-curdling screams. Of course, this was all just part of the show, but I must admit the effect was so realistic that I would not be surprised if half the audience didn't go home traumatized by the ordeal. And now the actors began running in every which way, many of them falling and clutching the ground in feigned agony. The children, I'd noticed, were all allowed to escape in a far too organized manner, as far as dramatic consistency could be concerned. Yet the sensibilities of the audience, as lustful for death as they may have been deep down, would not tolerate children perishing on stage. They were perfectly happy to tolerate that particular scourge in the real-life New York City. But that is a matter for a different diary entry. Now, the whole show ended with a massive grand finale of fireworks overhead that even the supposedly dead Romans watched from their backs with the awed inspiration of those who centuries and millennia ago Prometheus once blessed. That was great, but it was better the first time, said the British man. The crowd did not seem to share in his assessment, nor did I. The whole thing was magic. Okay, that brings us to the end of this episode of 1896, a series within the Have a Go show. I hope that you enjoyed yourselves. I know that I did. This show will grow as we go on, and it won't be the same every time. But it will bring you back into the year 1896. I mean, 1896, what a year, what a year. We got so much to cover. The Olympics, Edison, wars, intrigues, the Orient Express, steam travel, the Lower East Side, presidential elections, Grover, Cleveland, William McKinley, the figures, the facts, the stories, Europe, in its pre-World War I delusional haze, 1896, it will amaze. I'll see you soon. I'll see you very soon.